Welcome to the Today is the Day podcast, where we take a deep dive into popular health topics and empower you to make informed, evidence-based decisions. We offer practical tools and strategies so you can easily integrate what you learn into your everyday habits. And today is the day we're talking about the microbiome, the delicately balanced ecosystem in our body that is at the root of much of our health and when out of balance, the root cause of many common health challenges. We'll be covering what the microbiome is and where it's located, what can happen when the microbiome is out of balance, the surprising ways the microbiome impacts our health, one of the most important things we can do to support the health of the microbiome, and why protecting and restoring the microbiome is even more important now than ever. Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for joining this episode. I felt like your intro, Josh, we could have had like a pickle juice microbiome drinking game for every time you said microbiome. (laughs) I'm Megan Telbner, a nutritionist, two-time best-selling author, and founder of the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. Joining me, as always, is the person I share my microbiome with, Josh Catalis. Hi, everyone. I'm a clinical nutritionist and functional medicine practitioner with a clinic in downtown Toronto. I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Certification Program and an instructor with the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. We live in a world right now that is keen on sanitizing everything we are in contact with, which is why it's more important now than ever to make efforts to support, nourish, and protect our microbiome. This is the seat of biodiversity that is a major part of our immune system and overall health and well-being. But before anyone panics, killing off the microbiome is not new. Hand sanitizer has been used for over a decade, but beyond that, we can find antibacterial agents in massive variety of products hand soaps, wipes, garbage bags. But wait, there's more. These chemicals can also be found in yoga mats, earplugs, garden hoses, underwear. Underwear? Yes, I added that one in. You did. And even refrigerator filters. We've continued to learn more and more about the importance of the microbiome and about the products that destroy it. So in this episode, we dive into the subject to determine whether it's the germ we need to fear Or it's the terrain that's the important part. The terrain that needs to be strengthened. Absolutely. So Josh, you want to start us off? Tell us what is the microbiome and where is it located in our body? Well, the exact definition of the word micro, meaning we can't see it, and bio, meaning life. And it's everywhere. It's all over our body and it's in our body in pretty much every place in all of our mucous membranes. Now, what's interesting is there's different organisms that live in different places. So if you actually mapped out the microbiome and gave colors to it, Mm -hmm. there would be different colors all over the body, also all in the body. And what's interesting too is that when a microbiome is disrupted, say on your skin, say you use antibacterial on your hands, right? the same types of bacteria and organisms will actually re-inhabit that part of the tissue. Interesting. As long as you don't destroy it too much. So what you've just said is that our microbiome exists on the outside of our body, on our skin, our face, our hair, anything making contact with the outside environment. But the microbiome is also inside the body, in our gut, anything making contact, basically our internal environment. That's correct. So 
starting with the body, we know it's all in us and all over us. But if we start to go outwards, we also know that there's a complex microbiome in the air, Mm -hmm. in the air that we breathe, in the air that we live in, and the environment that we spend most of our time in, like our home. Each home has its own unique microbiome. Right. You know when you walk into someone's house and it has a particular smell, right? Yes. Your own house has a smell. Other people's houses have a smell. That's probably partly due to the fact that there's a microbiome there. There's many things that make up that smell, if you want to call it, and that microbiome. For example, if you have plants in your home, what you clean your home with, if you have animals in your home, what particular environment globally, geographically you live in, and what types of bacteria are coming in through your windows. I just picture when we get our son from school and we bring home this filthy little toddler and we're like, wash your hands, wash your hands. And he first has to try and touch every surface possible with his mucky muck little paws. That's correct. (laughs) But you've made sourdough bread, right? Yes. And sourdough starters. I do wild yeast sourdough. So it's attracting that microbiome, the yeast from our air. Right. Isn't that cool? That is cool. All right. So we have covered where this microbiome is, what it is. It's our skin, it's our hair, it's in our gut, it's in the tissues of our body. It's affected by the air that we breathe, the air that makes contact with our skin. And within our homes, we formulate by the people who live in it, people and creatures, plants and other things, create the microbiome of our home. So how does this microbiome actually affect us? How does the balance of the microbiome affect different functions in the body? It affects us in many ways, and it's quite complex. So there's this constant communication with these organisms and our immune system. And we have an immune system in our gut. That's actually the bulk of our immune system, which we've spoke about in the past. That's the gut-associated lymphatic tissue, or the GALT. And there's this communication I like the word gulp. (laughs) It rolls off the tongue. And then we have the skin-associated lymphatic tissue, which would be called the... Salt. (laughs) Yes. And then we have the vaginal associated lymphatic tissue, which would be called the vault. Are you making these words up? I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) And the different organisms that live there communicate with this immune system. So there's always this crosstalk happening. And we're actually more bacteria DNA than human DNA. We're outnumbered at least 10 to 1, which is fascinating that we're more these organisms than we are human. We are more bacteria than we are human. Exactly. So in the digestive tract, there's a a very important priming of our immune system based on what is living in there. So the microbiome affects digestion directly by that bacterial balance in the gut. So when that bacterial balance is an optimal balance, our digestion, if we're eating proper foods, should run smoothly. They help to break down, digest, and they consume the foods, and we excrete the byproducts. There's the saying, you are what you eat, but you're more like you are what your bacteria eats and then metabolizes and then provides for you. We sometimes joke that when we are craving sugar, it's actually not us. It's the bacteria in our gut craving sugar, that imbalance, and we're enabling those bacteria to proliferate. So if we have that imbalance in the gut of that microbiome, we may find that we crave sugar and other processed foods more readily, but we also might find that we are dealing with more digestive upset, symptoms associated with irritable bowel syndrome, where it makes that sound in your belly like you've eaten a lava lamp, where it's like blah, blah, blah. And you may have more gas and more issues with proper pooping, basically. So 
microbiome directly affects how well we can digest and assimilate food. It can affect what we crave. And it can then, as Josh said, impact our immune system from the gut source. Yeah, so let's give a couple examples. So one example, when we consume soluble fiber, Mm -hmm. we feed the bacteria in our gut they eat that soluble fiber. And as a byproduct, they make short-chain fatty acids. One of them is butyric acid and or butyrate. That is an extremely nourishing fat for our intestinal cells, mm-hmm. which keeps that gut nice and strong and makes sure it doesn't become leaky. So there's this symbiotic relationship. Now we can think about the gut as a wall around a city. I've used this analogy before. And it protects the inside of that city from what's on the outside. But that wall is kind of useless. That barrier is useless unless there's guards around that wall. Right. And that's what this microbiome is there for. It's to protect the city and to actually figure out what's friend and what's foe. And Mm -hmm. to say, hey, you know, you can come in, you're a friend, or you got to stay out, you're a foe. And it helps with that identification of what should come into the body and what should stay out and stay in the gut. Right. And we know that the skin is the primary barrier or protective shell around our body from our environment. So whatever makes contact with our skin will absorb in and could potentially affect the microbiome externally and internally. And that directly impacts how the immune system will function. Yeah, for sure. And also those bacteria that live on the skin create different chemicals that keep that skin healthy. So we often find when we look at the skin of people with eczema or psoriasis or other dermatological issues, that there's a disrupted microbiome. And as a result, sometimes there's an issue with the pH of the skin and the other factors that keep that skin healthy and regenerating properly. Right. We don't often think about how a skin issue could actually be resolved by addressing a gut issue, a microbiome issue. I'd like to think it's almost common sense, at least among our audience, that the gut and the health of the microbiome and the gut would affect digestion, would affect the immune system. But it also impacts our nervous system, our mood, and how we feel what we might call mentally and emotionally. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, we know that these bacteria and different microorganisms in our gut make psychoactive chemicals, like some of the neurotransmitters that are quite common in our body, like serotonin, dopamine. And those can actually go systemically and affect our nervous system directly. You know, there's a parasite that can inhabit mice which make them not scared of cats at all. Oh, yeah. We listened to a podcast about that once. Yeah. So we know that these organisms can actually change our behavior, which is fascinating. And, you know, when this mouse gets the parasite, it just like walks up to the cat and like slaps it in the face and then walks away. It's like not fearful at all. And we everyone just had like the cartoon vision of the cat and mouse chase. It's interesting because we sometimes can feel when we're feeling anxious and we get an upset stomach. And we can feel that when we maybe have an upset stomach and then it can affect our mood. And I don't know how closely anyone else is tuned into this. I know that I feel that all the time. So it's interesting to think that by nourishing the microbiome, we can elevate how we feel mentally and emotionally. We can resolve anxiety, depression, insomnia, all these things that we think of as exclusively in the mind or brain associated, which can actually be maybe not 100% resolved, maybe, but supported by ensuring the health of the microbiome. And so a lot of people will go to natural health practitioners with all these issues. And if you're one of those people going, make sure that the microbiome is being addressed and supported. 
Where is our first exposure to the microbiome? Where, what is sort of at the seed, the root? What seeds the microbiome in the human? There's a good way to put it. So according to our current understanding, we think that the first exposure is through the birthing process, through the vaginal canal. If it's a vaginal birth, all the bacteria and yeast organisms that are in the mother's vagina at that time go onto the baby, all on their skin. And as a result, that ends up in the baby's mouth and starts to inhabit the baby's gut. Yeah, and on their skin. So a couple of of holistic practices with birth. And if it's not a vaginal birth, you can also do seeding, where it's basically, if you can think of like a cotton swab, and then using that swab on the baby, putting in their eyes, their ears, their mouth, the various orifices. So the health of the microbiome of the mother has a direct impact on the strength of the microbiome of the newborn baby. And of course, we're also then, you know, if you are breastfeeding or if you're not, you're still holding your baby skin to skin. So the microbiome on your skin then also translates to that baby. So the root of the human or the seed of the microbiome of the human begins with the microbiome of the mother or the person giving birth to that child. For sure. And what's interesting is they've done studies looking at the difference between the microbiome of a baby who is born vaginally and the microbiome of a baby who is born C-section and the microbiome of a baby who's born C-section and underwent that seeding process. So you can get an identical microbiome by seeding if you have to have a C-section. But if you do a C-section and there's no seeding that takes place, it's a completely different microbiome, at least for the first two years of life. Right. However not too late. You can still snuggle and support the microbiome in your household. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how we support and build a healthy microbiome in a moment. So why is the first two years of life so important as it relates to the microbiome? Well, I want people to get the image of a garden in their head. Oh, summertime, summer, summer, (laughs) summertime. (laughs) And we have to think about our microbiome as a garden or even a forest later in life. So when a baby is born, they've got just a clean slate of land and they want to start to seed that land and then feed that land and then build all the nice new plants and flowers and good you know, foliage that they want there to have a healthy garden. I'm starting to laugh because I take care of sort of the food plants and the flowers and Josh takes care of the grass area, which is really a great example of protecting the microbiome. So Josh, when we first laid out our backyard, Josh sprinkled some grass seed, some clover seed, and it has been an ongoing battle, Josh, to protect the seeds you planted in our microbiome of a garden protecting it from everything from raccoons coming and literally rolling up sod to them now coming back and digging to all kinds of creatures. And it's an ongoing process of nourishing this microbiome, this garden, so that it doesn't get imbalanced or destroyed by the critters that want to take it over. Right. And that's a great example because if we think about a lawn, it's essentially a monoculture right? There's like one or two species, maybe the grass and the clover are just the grass. And therefore, it makes it a highly susceptible environment for damage. Right. It's the same with our microbiome. We know a lot about it, but there's still a lot we need to know. But one of the things we do know is that the more species you have as part of your microbiome, the more robust it is and the better it is. The biodiversity. Exactly. So if we think about the stages of life, we actually have three distinct stages. We have the first two years of life where we're building up that microbiome. Then we have most of your life, 
where it's been built up and you're trying to keep and maintain it. And then in the last part of your life, and in the elderly, they have a different microbiome as well. And we've looked at, or studies have looked at these three stages of life. So if we think about that garden, it's like starting to be seeded and growing. But then as we move into adulthood and through the most of our life, we're thinking about walking into a beautiful rainforest. That's a robust environment that can't take a lot of abuse or that can take abuse and won't be affected too much. I just thought of something as we talked about the elderly, because we know that we're having challenges in long-term care homes as it relates to the current virus, that elderly in most cultures now, at least in North America, are so heavily sanitized and kept indoors where their microbiome is left to basically deteriorate. And I was thinking about, we watched this documentary about, um, I can't remember what it's called, but about Cuba. And this gentleman was going back every year and visiting specifically these three old men who were like out working in their fields till they were in their 90s. These robust men who had their faculties. And it's just that difference of, and we see this in cultures, what, what's it called? The blue zones. The people who live the longest, how they're out and growing their food and connected with nature and community, that's all part of nourishing the microbiome. The ideas of health and how to maintain optimal health can get hyper complicated or we try and we, we don't try to, we end up making it complicated trying to think about the most perfect supplements and, and all these different things. But what if we focused instead during the core of our life of making decisions based on does this support an optimal microbiome or does it work against it? Could that transform our health? Well, I think this is a great point to discuss how we got into the big sanitation mess. Oh, gosh. And this goes way back to Louis Pasteur. Right. And Louis Pasteur discovered that there were these little bacteria in milk that could proliferate and harm people sometimes. And he basically discovered or inspired the discovery of pasteurization, which is named after him, Louis Pasteur. And he said that the germ is the problem. Right. And that's when we got on this whole train of, hey, we got to kill the germ. Mm -hmm. You've got to sanitize. You got to use antibiotics. You got to use antimicrobials because it's always the germ that's the problem. But interestingly enough, on Louis Pasteur's deathbed, he admitted that it's not the germ, but it's the terrain. So it doesn't necessarily mean that the bacteria, virus, parasite, or whatever that you're exposed to is going to cause the problem. It's dependent on what terrain it's living in, on what the health of your body is, on how strong and robust your body is. Right. And that terrain is based on the biodiversity in the body, the microbiome. Exactly. And just to give one example... There's a parasite called Blastocystis hominis. How do you remember these words? Because I see them every day with clients and tests. Blastocystis yeah. hominis. Yeah. And the estimates are about 13% of the population have them. So if we took 100 people and measured their stool, 13% are going to have them. But most people don't have any symptoms right. from them because they're kept in check when you have a healthy microbiome. And even though we isolate this one particular parasite, and say, you know, this could cause problems, it doesn't do it in everyone. Yes, in some people, it does actually cause some serious problems. But in others, it's totally fine. And we see the same thing with things like H. pylori. And viruses. And viruses, yes. You know, some people get symptoms and some people don't. 
Let's take a moment to meet an incredibly inspiring 2019 culinary nutrition expert graduate. This is Kate Flynn. Her California-based business is a force. Here's Kate to tell you more. Hi, my name is Kate Flynn. I'm a 2019 graduate of the Culinary Nutrition Program, and I'm based in Santa Barbara, California. So everything I've learned through this program has been so hugely valuable, both when it comes to building my business, but also in my personal life. So on the business side of things, I own a company, Sun & Swell, that's an organic, online, plastic-free grocery store. And while I started my company before taking this program, I have developed and launched so many products since taking Megan's course. And honestly, everything that Megan has taught me really serves as a North Star when I'm thinking about what types of products to launch. I also have used the content I learned in this course to help me build out my company's blog and social media content. And it's really allowed me to serve my customers and my community in a more meaningful way. On the personal side of things, like many of you, I'm sure my life is very busy. I own a business. I'm also a brand new mom. I actually found out I was pregnant during uh, this program, which made it all the more fun. But I feel like Megan's program really enabled me with the tools to ensure I was successful in allowing myself and my family to continue to eat healthy and nutritiously throughout the week, even when life throws us curveballs. So When I signed up for this course, I didn't know I was going to walk away with that tool. But honestly, like the tools when she gives us when it comes like meal prepping and meal planning and setting, setting us up for success personally was so valuable to me. And it was just like a cherry on top of all the other things that I took away from this program. My learning from Megan and Josh definitely did not stop when this program ended. I continued to learn from them every day through this podcast, through things like our private Facebook community, through some other programs that they offer. And I am so grateful for Megan and Josh and everything they do to help make this world a healthier place. Kate is one of the many graduates applying what she learned in our program in her personal life and using it to amp up and take her business to the next level. She is using what she learned in all aspects of her life. Learn more about Kate and what she's doing over at culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast and choose this episode. And if you are feeling inspired and are ready at long last to take the leap, well, this is your year. Head over to culinarynutrition.com forward slash info session to save your spot in the next live online program information session. In this one hour session, I will go through all the details of our life transforming 14 week certification program. We're waiting for you. Now let's return to today's conversation. Let's talk about what actually impacts the health of the microbiome that we can control. And diet, of course, culinary nutrition is going to be a big part of it. Sugar fuels the bacteria in the gut and not in a positive way. It can cause this imbalance. So I don't want to call them good or bad, but that's often how it's referred to, the good bacteria versus the bad bacteria. But sugar can fuel what we call the bad bacteria and cause an overgrowth and an imbalance in the microbiome. Same with processed food, alcohol, and even caffeine can have that impact. So if we're thinking about the microbiome and how it's related to a garden or a forest, it's constantly changing and being massaged by our environment, by our food, and what is coming in contact with it. So if you have a garden that has a lot of weeds and you're throwing 
you know, dandelion seeds there every day, it's going to create a big problem. But if you have a rainforest with a lot of species in this robust environment and you throw some dandelion seeds, it's probably not going to be a big deal. You mean that there's more biodiversity. Exactly. When we eat sugar, if you're doing it once in a while, it's not such a big deal. I think Mark Hyman calls it a recreational food. But if you're eating it on a regular basis, you're constantly feeding that microbiome that really likes that sugar and that has a party and starts to procreate when that happens. And you're going to create more and more imbalance. What about stress? How does stress affect the microbiome? We did talk about the nervous system association with it. How does the mental stress or perception of outside events being scary or life-threatening to us, and they're not always life-threatening, but our body reads them that way, how does that affect the microbiome? Well, a really interesting factor that we make that comes out of all of our mucous membranes is something called secretory IgA or SIgA. And it's one of our first lines of defense to foreign matter that enters our body. It's an immunoglobulin. It binds up to this foreign material and tells the immune system, hey, attack this. Don't let it come in. It's dangerous. We know that the amount of secretory IgA that's secreted can be decreased when we're under high amounts of stress. Hmm. When we recover and rest, secretory IgA actually comes back up. That's why sleep is so important. So stress can directly affect what's going on in our gut and how it makes us less or more susceptible to certain things that come down there. We also have to deal with chemical exposures. Now, there's some that we can't control. For going into workplaces or schools or public buildings, they're using different types of sanitizers. But there's a lot we can control and manage. And that's where we have to be really mindful because these things like the chemical triclosan and antibacterial agents aren't necessary to have in every household product you use, especially with chemical cleaners. Be really mindful about what you're using in your home to keep it, quote, clean. Remembering that soaps are intended really for your hands, your pits, and your bits. You don't want to be soaping off the beneficial bacteria that is on your skin, that prime part of the microbiome. And you have to remember too that when you're in your home, you're cleaning with all these chemicals, you're cleaning your fridge handle. Well, that hand that's opening the fridge will eventually go into your mouth with the food you're going to eat. And so it's all connected. And so you really want to be mindful of those chemical exposures. And of course, there's medications. Now, antibiotics can be essential and life-saving, but over the last 30 years, we've also seen what happens when they are overused, even when they're given prophylactically, when there may not be a specific indication for them. They are for really life-saving needs, but they're being overused. What other medications, or do you want to talk more on that one? Well, antibiotics, just look at the name, antibiotic, against life. They're there to basically carpet bomb the bad bacteria, but as a result, they're going to get all the good bacteria as well. And that's the big problem with antibiotics. Now, of course, as you said, if there's an infection you're going to die from, you're going to take antibiotics. Yes. And you know, it's about weighing the cost and the benefit, but they've been massively overused and that creates all sorts of other issues. Do you know what the greatest user of antibiotics are? Cattle. Exactly. Animals. Animals. And we get micro doses of those antibiotics in our food and our water if we're not eating organic, of course. And that's going to constantly affect our microbiome as well. There's other medications too that are going to affect the microbiome like birth control pill and really any chemical that goes down there. Some ways we understand know in terms of how it affects microbiome and a lot we don't know. 
Oftentimes when people are given a course of antibiotics, they're told to take a probiotic after it. This has become more commonplace, which is great to see. When we don't and we do wipe out that microbiome or we create a massive imbalance, we often see things commonly referred to as candida or dysbiosis, which is not always recognized fully in the medical community. What is this and what can people do? It's so common. Well, there are many different names for it. And just to put it all in one group, it's an imbalance of the good guys and the bad guys. Right. And then depending where it happens and what organism is out of balance, that's the one we call it or focus on. Let's get to the bright side. Here's the good stuff. Here's the good news about all the ways that we can and need to nourish the microbiome. And I've had so many questions in the last year from moms, parents, saying their kids are going to school, they're required to use these hand sanitizers. How can they offset or mitigate the harm of wiping out the microbiome. And one of the first and most important is dirt. Dirt don't hurt. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good one to remember. But dirt has so many amazing organisms in it that can slowly build our microbiome. We know that people who grew up on farms and have their hands in the dirt and are playing around and playing with the animals and touching them and petting them have lower rates of allergies, lower rates of skin issues. This is known of people who have pets in their house too, who have dogs. Exactly, yeah. And better immune systems. Yes. So being open to letting your kids play in the dirt, get dirty. And again, I think of our son when he comes home and he literally, even in the winter, they somehow find the patches of dirt they dig in. He's got dirt smeared on his face everywhere. So let them play in the dirt. And a really important part, My note says, expose yourself to as many diverse environments as possible. And I just picture someone flashing in the forest. Don't go flashing in the forest. That's not what I mean by expose yourself to as many diverse environments. I mean, getting out at your local parks, getting to the forest, getting to water. You know, right now, as we record this, our travel is limited. But being outside and really getting into nature is one of the most powerful and most natural ways you can replenish, restore, and support the microbiome. And again, we do want to keep our hands clean. We don't want to be transferring pathogenic or negative bacteria that could be harmful. So you want to wash your hands, pits and your bits with soap, but you want to protect the microbiome on the largest part of your body, your skin. We we love skin brushing as a way to cleanse the skin without disrupting the microbiome. Another piece here you mentioned in our intro that we share a microbiome. We do. And there was an interesting study done. Oh, I know the study you're about to share. I can see the smirkle on your face. I'm not too sure how they actually measured this. That would be very interesting. I got to look at the methodology. but And trial it? Maybe. Uh, a 10-second kiss transfers about 80 million bacteria between partners. So you got to choose your partner wisely. You're sharing your microbiome with them in many different ways. And I've actually had clients where we've had to address the microbiome of both people in the relationship to try to achieve more balance because there's yeast overgrowth or there's a parasite or there's dysbiosis. And we have to make sure that they're not passing this back and forth with each other. I feel like people are now going through a Rolodex of people that have passed through their (laughs) lives in intimate ways. That's probably a good thing, actually. (laughs) Helps shape the microbiome. Well, maybe there's a plus side to that phase of our lives. Once again, remembering that it's not the germ, it's the terrain. And so we don't necessarily need to fear 
everything that's out there. Like that doesn't put us in a healthy state. That's a stress that denatures the microbiome. Really, we want to focus on how we strengthen the terrain in as many different ways as possible. So we talked about getting out in nature, the biodiversity that naturally exists in outdoor environments. What about supplements, Josh? Prebiotics, probiotics? What are your thoughts on that? Right. So probiotics mean pro-life. And essentially what they are is they're what we think are the good guys for our gut, the commensal bacteria that live in symbiosis with us. There's a lot of debate about which ones are the best, which ones actually live in our gut, which ones stay in our gut, what the best probiotics are. But we do know that these can be helpful. And there's quite a bit of research showing that they can decrease things like gas and bloating. They can help things like IBS. They're really important for boosting the immune system and doing all the things that we know the microbiome does so they contribute to that. What feeds these probiotics is prebiotics. And these are essentially soluble fibers. We can get these from our food. What kind of foods, Josh? Uh, fruits and vegetables, Yeah. for example. Some have more than others. So, you know, plantains have a really high amount of soluble fiber, Jerusalem artichoke, onions, white potatoes, especially if you, interesting thing, take the white potatoes, cook them up, put them in the fridge. When they cool, they make something called resistant starch, which is an amazing prebiotic. And these feed our probiotics. So we it's like the one-two punch. You need the good guys, but you also need to feed the good guys. And then there's a lot of supplements as well with various soluble fibers that can really speed up and increase the food available to make that environment really robust. Did you say food? Since we're talking about... Did say food, Megan. What kinds of foods can help? One of the strongest and best things we can do is introduce and integrate fermented foods into basically every meal of the day. I'm a huge fan of making your own fermented foods. And over on our blog, when you click this link to this podcast episode, we've got some resources for you. I'm a big fan of making your own, but there's also benefits to buying them from local food makers because you're once again getting a more diverse microbiome. If you are fermenting them all in your own home, it's going to have a similar microorganism system. Does that make sense? Yeah, so. a similar, you know, bacterial balance or, or population. There, I guess there. that's what okay. we're looking for. There. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for the support there. <laughs> so you want to look for people who are properly fermenting quality food. So it's nice to be able to support local growers here in Toronto. I love getting stuff from Alchemy. We love their fermented hot sauces. Their kombuchas are great. But the point being, you want to have those fermented foods because it's a great way to introduce diversity into the microbiome. Fermented foods like miso, kefir, kimchi, sauerkraut, fermented nut cheeses, kombucha. I recently got hooked on beet kvass. Mm. And we're now currently doing pre-dinner shooters of pickle juice from the leftover pickles I made last summer. We are. Uh, you know, Donna Gates calls these bacteria on these foods first generation because you're not adding any bacteria and they're very strong and robust. It's like when you make sauerkraut, you're not adding any organisms to it. The organisms are already there from that cabbage growing in the ground. Yeah. So these are really powerful for inhabiting our gut and having some really amazing effects. One of the challenges people have with fermented foods, especially in sort of a Western culture, is that we're not familiar with or used to the taste of such sour food. So they're fermented because those bacteria are digesting the sugars in them, which takes away any sweetness from the food and creates that very sour taste that we associate with fermented foods. 
So it can be difficult to start to integrate them. The other thing you want to be careful of is that also we tend to think of, you know, if a little bit's good, more is better. That's not the case with these foods. More will lend you probably on the toilet for a long time. So you want to introduce them in small amounts incrementally and just see how your body adjusts to them. If you're sensitive to histamine, you might want to be mindful of some of the fermented foods. So again, small amounts and see how your body reacts. One of the first things we actually introduced to our son was sauerkraut juice. Yeah. And his face was really, really funny when he ate up, but he did want more. He went back for more. It's interesting because we introduced the fermented foods to him as one of his first tastes. And he still, it's been, you know, his tastes have changed over the years, but it's still one thing that he always loves. He loves sauerkraut. He loves fermented nut cheeses. He likes miso soup. He'll eat sourdough breads are the only breads he's ever had. And he'll even drink the pickle juice along with us. So Megan, tell us a little bit how to incorporate some of these single fermented foods into recipes and everyday eating. Yes. So this was like a recent eureka for you. I made this batch of kimchi that was super spicy. And on eggs, it is so good. Game changer. We also love it. Like we will make up a miso soup. And there's a recipe for this actually in the Undyed Cookbook. But a miso soup with some tempeh and plopping some kimchi on top, which gives it a nice crunch, a balance in the flavor, and a little bit of that spice. We'll also add kimchi or sauerkraut into sushi rolls which also provides a nice texture. So that's a nice way to... And when I say sushi rolls, I should actually call it nori rolls. We're using the seaweed of nori with some brown rice or quinoa or cauliflower rice, some different veggies, and rolling that up. When we do use miso, we put it in at the end. So we don't cook the miso because we want the benefits of all that good bacteria in there. So we'll heat the soup up by itself and then blend it all together afterwards. Right, right. That's when we combine it with like a chicken soup to like up the level of our chicken soup and the flavor. I love a coconut kefir yogurt, basically taking two cups of coconut milk and mixing in a probiotic, giving it a shake and letting it sit for 24 hours. So the bacteria in that probiotic will digest and ferment those sugars, giving it that beautiful sour taste and those benefits. And then you take that kefir, hang on to your hats, blend it with some cacao, maybe a fruit to make an ice cream, and you can sweeten it as you like with honey. You can also use that coconut kefir to make chia bowls in place of the milk. You might add a little bit of water if it gets really thick. You love this next one, sauerkraut mixed into salads. I do. It's a great way to have it. It adds a little bit of that sour to the whole salad and it's not too strong. No. And we'll put it on sandwiches. We'll use it as side dishes. And when we're done, the kraut or the pickles, we can use that juice to drink it like a gut shot, the cool kids call it. But you can also use that fermented juice that's left over in salad dressings to replace the acid. So instead of using, say, a balsamic vinegar or lemon juice, you can use a little bit of that liquid, the brine from the fermented food. We love sipping on fermented drinks, like almost like a cocktail. We love kombucha. And one of my favorite drinks in the summer is a kombucha margarita, where you take the kombucha and blend it with some fresh strawberries, some ice, a little bit of lime. And if you need a sweetener, you can add a little sweetener to taste it and sip on that. And this is a game changer, friends. Everybody ready for this one? A kombucha float. So you make the coconut yogurt, freeze it. So it's like an ice cream. Put that in a glass, pour the kombucha over top and wowza. Yeah. That is a summer treat. Now, if you're listening to this and this, a lot of this is new to you and you're getting pumped, you're going to get rid of the sugar, alcohol, coffee, 
all those things that feed the bad part of our microbiome. And then you're going to bring in all these fermented foods and go crazy with it. Let me just heed a warning here. Slow down, Sally. If we're tilling the soil too quickly and pulling out all those weeds, you could stir up a lot and it could create a lot of gas and discomfort. Remember, this is a slow and steady process and you can either massage it and nourish it slowly in the right direction or in the wrong direction. And then if you've been doing it in the wrong direction too long and you're trying to get back, you might need to go slow with some of these foods because there is a readjustment of those different organisms in your gut. Heed that warning. Good call, my my voice of reason over there. Well, I've seen it many times with clients, right? Yeah. Because they come to me and maybe they have dysbiosis, maybe they have candida overgrowth, maybe we're trying to get rid of a parasite, a pathogenic parasite. And when we start to maybe use some antimicrobials and then feed or weed, seed and feed the gut through that process, there can be a lot of discomfort at certain phases. And if the individual can handle that discomfort, then we stick with it and eventually it gets better. Now, I'll give you another example. Okay. Say someone is on the standard American diet, cheeseburgers, fries, soda pops, all that for a really long time. And then they want to go on a health kick and they say, you know, I'm going to have salads every day for every meal. They're going to be in serious discomfort because now they've just brought all this amazing soluble fiber to feed the microbiome and they're going to really stir the pot in that situation. We call that a case of the tuba tushy. <laughs> well, I even remember when I started studying nutrition, I started having way more salads. Right. And the gas really increased substantially, but it leveled off and it got better and now it's fine. That was around the time we started dating. And I'm sure everyone is really happy they know that about me now. And somewhere in one of these episodes, we have shared your artichoke, your Jerusalem artichoke story. So if you've not heard that, you're going to have to find it in one of our episodes. Speaking of which, if you love this one, it pairs quite nicely with our episode on digestion and our episode on the immune system. So that's a, a triple threat or a hat trick as, the, as they like to call it in the sports arena. So enjoy and listen to all of those. Thank you so much for joining us. We have more resources and an assortment of guides on making and using fermented foods and other ways to support the microbiome over on the blog. Visit culinarynutrition.com forward slash podcast and click on this episode to access all of the extra information. If you want to learn how to start nourishing the microbiome with good food from scratch cooking, gain confidence in the kitchen, and be empowered to share this information with others, then join us for the Culinary Nutrition Expert Program. Registration is now open, and you can learn more at culinarynutrition.com forward slash program. Knowledge is important, but applying it is where the power is. As I always say, the best way to get started is to get started. Take what you've learned and start applying it in your life. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you again next time.